the gift of our mothers. I, Eve, having had the spirit of wisdom poured out upon me, having been commissioned of my mother with open eyes, now hold this fruit in my hands and partake, proclaiming, through me, let there be life. We traditionally read Genesis 3 as a condemnation of Eve, but there are a couple of elements here that suggest that quite the contrary, this is a literary masterpiece that is portraying Eve very much as a messianic role model. And as Mindy Brown described this in a recent podcast that I listened to that had her on it on Faith Matters, this was Eve acting in proxy for all of us like a high priestess in the tabernacle sphere of the Garden of Eden and deliberately making a decision to usher all of us into mortality. This moment in time was the crux upon which all of our lives depended. And I just have to share that one of the first priesthood blessings I ever received as a 14-year-old girl from my dad that meant so much to me very loudly declared, you shouted for joy when Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, just as you shouted for joy at the chance to come to earth and shouted for joy when Christ performed the atonement. This was a joyous occasion. This was something to be celebrated and so we're going to talk today about the elements here that suggest why this was a triumph and not a condemnation, why Eve deserves some vindication, and why all of the shame and the blame only belongs to the serpent, if anyone dot 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 or does it. Is there another function that the serpent serves? So we're going to talk about all of that today. Lynn, do you want to start us off with some introductory (laughs) thoughts? Yes. So one of the first things that I want to point out is the way that the story is told in primary or in Sunday school growing up. There's often this like God creates Adam and Eve and then like, boom, the next second they, they fall, they partake and they're kicked out of the garden. So I want to first point out that we don't really know how long they spent in the garden. It's been suggested that that time there was a lot longer than it's portrayed in the Genesis story. In the Coptic text, the Discourse of the Abiton, a sermon based on the text delivered by Timothy, the Archbishop of Alexandria, we read that Adam and Eve dwelt in innocence in the Garden of Eden for 200 years. And there's a lot of other different interpretations that suggest something similar. That time period may have been quite extended. I view that time period personally as an opportunity for Adam and Eve to learn and to grow, to become prepared for this most immense task that laid ahead of them of partaking of the fruit and leaving the garden. So in my mind, I view that more as their childhood, a chance to grow and to learn. All of that really rings true to me, and I think that that is the most common mistake we read when we're looking at the text Time is so poorly demonstrated throughout the entire book of Genesis. And we read into it like all of the things that happen throughout this book of scripture are immediate and successive. But actually, 
We have a lot of reasons to suggest that the Garden of Eden was this very nurturing state of childhood for Adam and Eve because they were our first parents. And we don't know how much of this is literal and how much of this is metaphorical, of course. But I do just want to say that if, if we're taking this as literally as we possibly can, let's say that they are the first human parents on earth. They never got to have a childhood. And every single child deserves some sense, some semblance of a home, protection, nurturing, and sense of direction. And parenting, the entire goal of parenting is to teach your children to raise them to become independent adults themselves. And the Garden of Eden was a time where the Lord was an extremely authoritative parent. It says that the Lord came and walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And that sounds to me like a common occurrence. Like he must have been walking with them, talking with them, teaching them many times. And and not just God the Father, but probably God the Mother as well. Probably angels had some sort of access to the Garden of Eden. And I'm not entirely sure what that experience was. All that we know is that it said the Lord God walked in the garden and that this wasn't a shock to Adam and Eve. And so I think it's really important that we also understand that when this commandment was given to them, do not partake of the fruit, it is possible that this commandment was given to them in the context of their childhood. When they first had entered into the garden, it's very possible, and in my opinion, most likely, that this was a caution, a warning, and loving instruction from a parent that, hey, whoa, 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 you're not ready for this yet. And it's the same kind of concept I think about when you think about giving the car keys to a seven-year-old. You would never do that. You would always tell your child, do not drive the car. And that's not because cars are bad, and it's not because that child is bad. It's because that child is not yet ready, is not yet developed enough yet to be able to drive a car. But 10 years later at 17, that child is probably more equipped with some training and some guidance to be able to take those keys and drive the car himself. And this is the goal of the Garden of Eden, in my opinion. It was a way for God, the father and the mother, in my opinion, to walk and talk with their children, to teach them what they were going to need for the life they were about to step into and to nurture them in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to teach them about the plan of salvation, so that when the time came, Eve could independently make a decision to partake of the fruit. I love that. And that really resonates with a lot of the way that I've tried to reconcile this. And we can talk a little bit about the commandments. I don't think we've talked about that yet in our previous episode. That's a really logical way to approach this. And like I said, it really makes sense we see the same kind of principle in other examples in the scriptures. If we think of the law of Moses, which was later fulfilled, replaced by the Savior's sacrifice, and then a new law was given. Or I think often of Joseph Smith's process of obtaining the gold plates, that originally he was commanded not to touch them, not to obtain them. He had to return again and again over the years while he was learning throughout that whole time, until he was ready to partake, if we might say, of the plates. 
to take that next step. So the goal was always for him to obtain the plates, but he had to be prepared. And I see Eve's story in a lot of the same way. In some ways, I imagine her coming back to the tree again and again and learning each time and then going out and learning some more and then coming back to the tree and asking, is it time for me to partake yet? No? Okay. (laughs) Going back for a couple hundred more years, whatever, and learning And then eventually the time came and we're missing so much of the story that maybe that is how it has happened. Maybe that commandment was rescinded. In my mind, so many times the commandments that we receive have more to do with our personal preparedness and our state than with any other factors. So I wonder if this command was to give Adam and Eve time to prepare. Yeah, I really love that idea of Eve going out and learning and getting to a place where she is ready to partake and it acting as more of a lower law, higher law situation. I think all commandments are put in place for us to learn anyways, right? They're put in place for us to learn and to grow and to be able to guide and govern ourselves in situations because like you said, Alin, we see all throughout scripture where commandments are broken in certain circumstances and sometimes even god leads people to break commandments at certain times based on their own circumstances i also love the idea of eve being the one that partakes of the fruit and some ideas out there as well that surround Adam being the only one that was given the commandment to not partake, that we didn't see Eve there yet when that commandment was given. I personally think that and have felt that it was Eve's stewardship to partake. Eve being the one that would fulfill that feminine role, fulfill the descent into pregnancy, into growing and laboring and birthing children but also this descent into her own inner wisdom right coming to know her own inner wisdom coming to trust her intuition and descending inward into her new you could say as is outlined in the greek version of the gospel of mary magdalene the new being basically your own inner wisdom your own inner eye which is described as a process of descent within oneself and also defined as a very feminine process, something that is requiring more feminine energy or feminine stewardship than it is masculine. So I think that with God giving Adam the commandment to not partake was maybe this signaling of Eve being the one to be the steward over birthing all of the pre-mortal children, all of our pre-mortal souls into mortality, ushering our souls through the first veil. Also this feminine stewardship over wisdom. So both the stewardship over wisdom and motherhood, it was Eve's stewardship to partake of the fruit and to decide when she was ready and wise enough to take on this role of descending into mortality and to carry the burden of birthing children and 
starting life in mortality. That was her choice and decision to make when she was ready to do that. And I think that the way Jessica talks about Adam's eyes being closed as well during Eve's creation and not opened until he was able to partake of the fruit, whereas Eve's eyes were open to the fruit and open to the opportunity to descend into mortality and knowing that that would make her wise and knowing that that was a way for them to progress and to grow. I get a lot of really beautiful themes of consent in this story when I view it that way. Yeah, so Natalie, I love that idea. And that idea is really well presented in Valerie Hudson Castler's article, The Two Trees. And if you haven't read that, definitely go give that a listen. And she points out, so there's one theory out there that Eve wasn't present at the time. And Valerie derives this idea from the wording in Genesis 2 when it says that God created the man and then gave the man the commandment. And we talked about this last time, how that word man is kind of up for interpretation. And so we could read it that way as Adam was created alone and then given this commandment and Eve wasn't there. And I love to consider the possibilities of that. There's the other way of thinking about it that we talked about last time too, though, in which this word man might include both Adam and Eve, in which case it's possible that Eve was there. And both of those are really interesting to consider. I think we can learn a lot from both of those different ideas. Later on in Genesis 3, when Eve is talking with the serpent, she obviously knows of the commandment because he he says to her, hath God said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And so she's obviously aware of it, but what we don't know there is which one of these paradigms it fits into, right? Maybe she's aware of it because Adam told her and maybe even added something in there because we have this extra commandment to not touch it, which is not included in the original one. Or maybe she's aware of it because she was there. And Jessica, I know you have some interesting ideas on these different perspectives. Well, as beautiful and as lovely an idea as I really do think that this is, and I do believe that it's on the table for debate and there's so many wonderful elements to it to draw from, I actually feel like my heart kind of contests it a little bit. And I think that the text also does kind of contest this as well. So what we actually read in that verse that Alin just brought up, in verse three of Genesis three, Eve is responding to the serpent who has just asked her, has the Lord told you, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman says in great detail what she knows is allowed and is appropriate to eat from. But she does state, God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And all of these ye's, in the Hebrew text, this is second masculine plural. So this is not just referring to Adam alone, but it's implied that it is referring to Adam and his wife as they are the only humans that have been presented to the text. It must be referring to both of them together in tandem. 
And I know that that's possible that even that could be contested by someone that, well, it's masculine plural, so maybe it's just referring to Adam and, and men in general, but no other men existed. And for as much as we say about Elohim and emphasizing the importance of recognizing the feminine within that masculine plural construct in the name Elohim, I do think that Eve is responding very confidently to the serpent and saying that God has told the both of them, don't partake of this, or both of you will suffer consequences. And I think the reason why my heart is mainly contesting this idea is not because it isn't beautiful and really wonderful in its own right. I do think that it is, and I, I don't think that it's invalid, but I think that there's room to contest it because... I think that for me, it takes away a little bit from the bravery and the gumption of Eve. I think it takes a little bit away from her agency as well, actually. It feels a little bit more controlling if this was set up to only be something that was commanded to Adam. And it almost kind of justifies, I don't know if this is necessarily right to say, but I, I feel like someone could twist it in a really warped way to justify that, you know, one gender is uh, commanded not to engage in something that the other gender is naturally destined to do, you know, right? Like sometimes the way that we talk about the priesthood now today, I feel like somebody could come along and say like, well, this is a classic case of because women bear children and because men have the priesthood, there's this difference and men have this responsibility and women have this responsibility. And I just kind of feel like, I think that there's so much more to Eve than her childbearing capacity. And the reason why she was a mother was because she had eyes to see that there was something special about the fruit. And Adam did not see that first and he needed her to see it. I kind of, I kind I, yeah, I, I think that I would prefer not to see this as an instance where the man was clearly instructed, okay, you've just got to wait on your wife to make this decision because it's, it's her consent. I, I do think there's beauty in consent. And I do think there are so many other elements of the text that do suggest the consent of Eve. But I almost worry that that idea kind of takes away from just how revolutionary this was of Eve. This wasn't just oh, Adam would have partaken of the tree if God hadn't commanded him. No, this was both of them were on an equal ground and had equal decision, but it was only Eve who saw that it was a good thing to do. And I think that's what makes her a type of Christ. And I think that's what makes her the helpmeet to Adam is that he needed someone who could see something that he didn't see, but that he should have seen, but, you know... I, I just kind of, I kind of just have to go with my heart on interpreting it this way, but I think that there's room for both theories, whatever our listeners feel the most sense of comfort from. And maybe there's elements of both theories that can give us a strong and valid and true interpretation of the value of Eve as the mother of all living and how important it was that she was destined to be the one to do this. I think the question is more just was only she destined to partake of the fruit and Adam wasn't even given a chance 
Or was it that both of them, yes, were forbidden to give them a clear opportunity to make a decision and only Eve rose up and made that deliberate decision in contrast to being told there will be serious consequences if you do it. I love how much nuance there is and how many different ways there are to look at the text. And I think it's important to, to note the limitations of both of these different theories, but also to take from the text what you need and to let the spirit guide you in your, in your learning. So we, we can see that Eve clearly knows about this commandment. And like Jessica was saying, God is walking in the garden with them. I mean, the, gar- the Garden of Eden is very likely a temple setting, as suggested by many, many, many different scholars. I will say that there is some nuance, like we discussed in Genesis 2 and verse 17, when God is talking to Ha'adam and saying, thou shalt not eat, that is in the masculine singular imperative. So like we said, there's, you know, potentially Ha'adam includes Adam and Eve, in which case, you know, throughout this argument, but <laughs> but there is something to be said there for that that potential. There is some potential that it could be interpreted as a command to Adam. The other part that I really like, though, that we don't see in our Genesis text is the way we hear it in our temple narrative when God gives the commandment and then says, nevertheless, thou mayest choose for thyself. And I love that because even here with this commandment, whatever the nature of it, whether it was given just to Adam or to both Adam and Eve and later rescinded, whether it wasn't rescinded by God and Eve learned by direct personal revelation, whether Eve had to make a step, all of these things, we know that God valued the agency of Adam and Eve. And we also know that it was the intent for them to partake. However, we see that, and there's a lot of different ways to take it as we've just talked about it and different opinions. And I hope that you can feel that and it's okay to have these different opinions here. But I think we definitely see that throughout the narrative, Eve learns to trust her personal revelation her intuition. So what I think is beautiful about the idea that there was a commandment, because yes, I do think that it was more a warning of consequences, but even if it was like a commandment, what I think is happening here is God is acting as an authoritative parent in that he is setting them up to have to make a choice, because if they never had a specific boundary in place, and, and that's what this is. This is not declaring that partaking of knowledge is a sin. This is establishing a boundary. And, and yes, it is warning of clear consequences. But what's happening here is he is forcing Adam and Eve to use their agency. And it says here in 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 15, And to bring about his eternal purposes in the end of man, After he had created our first parents, it must needs be that there was an opposition, even the forbidden fruit in opposition to the tree of life, the one being sweet and the other bitter. Wherefore, the Lord God gave unto man that he should act for himself. Wherefore, man could not act for himself, save it should be that he was enticed by the one or the other. Now, I don't think that God is saying here necessarily that, well, all of us have to have temptation or all of us have to experience sin to know righteousness. But I do think that what he is saying is the purpose of mortality is to be 
face to face with these decisions that we make every day of what we will do and what we will not do, who we will be and how we will develop our character in a way that draws us closer to God or farther away from God. And what I think we see in the Eden account is that the only way to draw closer to God was to make a deliberate decision that was outside of the comfort zone. And I think that it's important that there was a commandment given to not partake of the forbidden fruit. But, you know, I really do more read that as just so you know, if you eat this, you will be crossing a huge boundary and there will be massive consequences. And I think that that's very different from this is morally wrong to do. I think it's just like a huge warning of consequences. That had to happen for Eve to be deliberate in her decision. It also had to happen for her to be independent and to use her agency. And had that not been established, then Eve could not have performed the very act that was essential to consenting to a mortal experience because all of us enter this life and we have to embrace the good and the bad and Eve had to make this decision for all of us to consent to that experience and the only way to consent to that experience of encountering the good and the bad and making these hard decisions was to make a hard decision in the first place and to identify that there was something good about the tree. And that is where I think we see the maturity of Eve because we know that Adam and Eve were ignorant in the garden and yet it says in verse 6 that she saw the fruit that it was good and she identifies that. So if this was before she had even partaken of the fruit and knew the difference between good and evil, how is it possible that she came to that determination? And that tells me that she had reached a state of maturity where she was ready to make that independent decision and step into adult womanhood. Jessica, when you were talking about the only way for Eve and Adam to really come to know God and come to choose God was to partake of the tree, it reminded me of this text called the Mentana text that Alin shared with me a while ago. And it is... Suppose, supposedly a record of the endowment ceremony of the people of Nemenha. In this ceremony, right, they talk about when Eve partakes of the fruit, she goes back to Adam and she tells him that she has partaken. And Adam's confused and he's like, why did you do that? How are we supposed to have a relationship with God now, basically is what he, what he says. And she asks Adam, like, do you think you have a relationship with God now? Do you think you understand God now? And Adam says, yes. And Eve says, but how can you actually have a relationship with God without having this knowledge of good, of who God is, and evil, of who God is not? In the text, she says, Look at me. I have eaten of this fruit. I know the good from the evil. I may now choose good and reject evil. Can you make that claim, Adam? And she continues on in the conversation and asks Adam if he really knows God, really knows his creator. And she says, I can tell you of a surety that he is good. I can tell you that what he commands you to do is good. And that if you follow him, no bad thing will come of all your works. Can you declare these things, Adam? And Adam says that he can't, right? Because he just follows. He doesn't actually have the knowledge and doesn't actually know. And the last thing that she says is, 
the creator could command us to do this and to do that, but we could not become like him merely by his commanding it. Only in knowing why a thing is good or why a thing is bad may we be like him. This is wisdom, and I would have a wise husband. So she continues to tell him that she needs a husband who is wise and a husband who recognizes, is able to recognize divinity within himself and recognize good from evil in the world. And one that can help her raise children who can recognize the same and that if he doesn't partake, he can't actually do that. And I think this is such an interesting conversation, the way that they frame it in this text. And I love that so much too, because I really feel like for me, I see the serpent as a negative agent. And we'll talk about the nuance of that, of course, because I think everything's on the table for debate and it's really, really wonderful to view it in both ways. But if we are viewing the serpent as a negative agent, I really do feel like his purpose in the text is to represent what God is not. And I feel like in the history of the world, the folly of religion when it gets too extreme is this tendency to want a God who commands us in every little thing and every little jot and tittle. A God who asserts his authority. A God who kind of tells us what to do that's you know gonna be for our own good. And um, I feel like the serpent, the way that he presents himself, he presents himself as one who has authority when he does not. He is intentionally trying to be manipulative. He is trying to divide Eve from her relationship with God and trying to insinuate doubt in her. And I just feel like the serpent really represents everything that God actually is not. And the difference between God and the serpent in this account is that, you know, it says that God walked and talked with Adam and Eve, so he probably had very sweet conversations with them that did not involve this pestering and this manipulation. And they, they were very loving in a way that Eve was able to distinguish between what the serpent was telling her and what God had previously told her. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the serpent and the devil in general, he's just always trying to speak as though he is God and this all-powerful supernatural being that has authority and that's like, oh no, if you do this, but hey, want to know a secret to how all of your dreams can come true? You know what I mean? Like, he is that kind of a person. And sometimes I think that religion, sometimes we paint God or religion as though that's what religion or the gospel can do for us. And um, like it's the supernatural like authority. But the truth is, is that God, in contrast to the serpent, he really let the decision be Eve's. And he was there. As soon as she partook of the tree, as soon as she made this huge decision, he was there and he showed up walking in the garden. And that, that lets me know that God was an extremely conscientious parent or set of parents in that moment and they were there and they were loving. But where was the serpent once Eve had partaken of the fruit? And, and where was any of the concern that he may have had for what she had done, right? He had kind of recklessly egged her on. 
so we're going to talk a little bit about that process of the the serpent and this beguiling but there is a little bit of foreshadowing that I just want to suggest in some of these in Genesis 2 verses 8 and 9 God plants the trees and in the same breath it says he forms every tree that's good for food he plants the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and there's not a clear distinction there of saying God formed every good tree and then formed an evil tree. That's not what it's saying. And we see that this tree was called good by Eve. So there's a couple different concepts of the tree of knowledge and the tree of life in ancient mythology and in Jewish interpretations. One of them puts them actually as both being of the same tree, just two different sides, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. And I, th- I think there's some really beautiful symbolism there about the duality, how we need both the mortality and the immortality or the eternal life there. Another description of the garden and how it's laid out puts the tree of knowledge as a hedge around the tree of life. So almost indicating that there's no way to partake of the tree of life unless you first go through this mortality through the tree of knowledge. I really love the way that Vivian McConkie describes both of these trees, she describes the tree of life as this symbolic, figurative representation of how and in what manner salvation shall come. And the tree of knowledge, on the other hand, being how and in what manner mortality shall come. And I just love that idea of Adam and Eve growing up with these two symbols in the garden, like constantly being surrounded by this reminder, this is your destiny. And then one last thought that I'll that I'll put here is uh, just some different interpretations of the tree and and what some of the that symbolism might mean. Nehama Ashkenazi, a scholar who has written extensively on this story and the interpretations of Eve, reminded us that a lot of commentators view this phrase, the knowledge of good and evil not being restricted to moral awareness only, but as denoting, quote, a full possession of mental and physical powers. Alin, I love that so much. And everything that you were saying, it really reminds me of what I kind of read into the symbolism of the menorah in the tabernacle is. The menorah stands right before the veil of the tabernacle and and the temple of Solomon, of course. And beyond that veil is the Holy of Holies. In, in other words, that place represents the metaphorical tree of life in the tabernacle, that sphere of reaching exaltation, reaching a final destination and a state of glory and perfection, receiving all that God has to offer. And preliminary to entering into that sphere, you have to pass by the menorah and those candles must be lit. So what's so special, and you've talked about this so much, about how the menorah was specifically constructed to be in the shape of a tree. And when we are sitting in the temple endowment experience, again and again, it is brought to our minds that what we seek in this lifetime is truth and light. Those are even epithets that Jesus Christ takes upon himself. I am the truth, I am the light, and ultimately, I am the life of 
the world. So what I think is so beautiful is when it says that cherubim and a flaming sword guarded the tree of life, it's actually a really interesting reference to the tabernacle because those cherubim were etched in a design onto the very veil of the tabernacle. And perhaps that flaming sword was the menorah itself. And to me, the menorah represents knowledge and it represents wisdom. And you have to gain that truth and light before you can pass beyond the veil. So I actually really do find a lot of metaphorical meaning in that, in the context of the Garden of Eden. And I do firmly believe that partaking of the tree of knowledge was necessary, essential, and preliminary to partaking of the tree of life in that way. And I like that because there's so many parallels between the Garden of Eden and temple symbolism. I love how it describes the tree in the center. As you consider the way that the tabernacle and that later temples are set up, it's this kind of concentric circles of increasing holiness, that the closer you get to the center, the holier you become, or the, the more purified you have to become in order to approach. And we even see some of the, the same temple language. So in Genesis 2.15, when God commands Adam and Eve to abad and shamar, to work or to dress and to keep this garden, that is language that's reflected later on referring to temple and tabernacle work. In Genesis Rabbah, we read that, that this phrase points to early sacrificial orders. And in some lexicons, this actually means to worship. The word abad means to worship or to perform a cultic rite. What's interesting is that that term in the second temple period would become associated with temple worship specifically related to a sacred tree. And so I think it's really interesting, all of these different layers, and there's so much more that we could say about these, but just to drive home this point that this was a sacred setting, the Garden of Eden was meant to reflect temple rituals, temple ceremonies, the opportunity for divine revelation to walk with God. And so all of these acts, I think we can interpret them in ways that bring us closer to God. So let's talk a little bit more about the actual events that we see in Genesis 3. The serpent, the symbolism of the serpent, the beguiling, the conversation between the serpent and Eve and Eve's ultimate decision. So one thing to note is that in the text in Genesis, it never actually conflates the serpent explicitly with Lucifer. That is a later interpretation. However, I will say that when we read in our scripture, in Moses chapter four, we have a very explicit statement that the serpent was a representation of Lucifer. So although that might not be there in the original text in Genesis, that is the commonly accepted interpretation. And there's a lot to learn from that, although we will talk about some other interpretations. So in Moses chapter four, we do read this account of how Lucifer is cast down for his rebellion to the plan. And then we read in verse five that the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which I, the Lord God, had made. And Satan put it into the heart of the serpent and he sought also to beguile Eve, for he knew not the mind of God, wherefore he sought to destroy the world. There's this explicit relation here of the serpent to Lucifer, which we don't get in the Genesis text. 
And I love the way that it talks about here that he knew not the mind of God, because I think motivations are everything in this story. Eve's motivation to partake, Lucifer's motivation, Adam's motivation to hearken to Eve. Motivation, I think, is everything. Everything about this account comes down to the intentions behind everybody's decision. And that's the whole point, right? Just as Eve is making this decision to partake of the fruit and she's learning how to determine between what's good and what's evil, we as the reader are given the opportunity to determine who is good and who is bad in contrast and in opposition to one another. So that excerpt from Moses constitutes modern revelation through the prophet Joseph Smith. But we also see in 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 18 in the Book of Mormon, And because he had fallen from heaven and had become miserable forever, he sought also the misery of all mankind. Wherefore, he said unto Eve, Yea, even that old serpent, who is the devil, who is the father of all lies, Wherefore he said, Partake of the forbidden fruit, and ye shall not die, but ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. So because this account is coming from Lehi and Nephi, this constitutes to me an Old Testament text, and a reference from at least around 600 BCE that the interpretation was that the serpent was the devil himself. And this is around the time that it's assumed that this account was even originally written down in the first place. And so I do think it stands to reason that the serpent really was the devil as the Book of Mormon describes, as the Book of Moses describes. And there are many reasons why I think the devil portrayed himself as a serpent or why for a rhetorical device, why the imagery or the metaphor of a serpent was used. And some scholars have argued that perhaps this interpretation, where the serpent is the devil, that that was also chosen specifically because there were these older traditions of a divine figure being represented as a snake. And so perhaps there is that the choice of the snake is because he thinks maybe he can impersonate God by coming in that form. So that's an interesting thing to consider in some of these, that, and we'll talk through some of those older traditions. However, I think like the general interpretation, which I would accept, is that the snake is Lucifer. I think all of these things are important and necessary to keep an open mind to and to discuss and to draw from them the best of the symbolism and the lesson to be learned that we can. And it is true to form that everything Lucifer does is a copy and paste of what Elohim does and what the Savior himself does too. He is constantly trying to mimic and imitate them in the form that he appears. So I would not discount that the imagery of a serpent was originally positive and could have been tied to a goddess. That could, both theories could coexist with each other in this account, that it was originally a good and a positive association with the goddess, but it was still Lucifer coming in mimicry and mockery of God. It's possible. So as someone who is a little bit more inclined to go with the traditional view that the serpent was a negative agent and the serpent was representative of Lucifer, one of the reasons why I think the devil is manifested as a serpent in the text is for the image that comes to mind when one thinks about a snake. 
it isn't just about how much people are afraid of snakes or how sinister they often are portrayed to be, but a serpent in and of itself is the most bare creature you can think of. Snakes have scales, but they have no fur, they have no hair. They're different from other beasts of the field that Adam and Eve would have been interacting with. And something that's interesting about the skin of the serpent himself is that, in a way, it's a rhetorical parallel to the way that Adam and Eve are presented in this text. In Genesis 2, verse 25, it reads, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And this is really fascinating because in the very next verse that follows, in chapter 3, in verse 1, it describes the serpent as being more subtle than any beast of the field. Now that word subtle in Hebrew, it does mean conniving or clever, or you know, just kind of implying this ability to be pretty slick with his words, right? It does imply that, but this word is actually the same exact word that's used to describe Adam and Eve as naked. And this word in Hebrew is arum. The serpent is described as arum, meaning subtle. And Adam and Eve are described as arumim, which is both of them were naked in the plural. So it's possible, we talked about this in my Hebrew class, that it's possible that maybe this could be read as now the serpent was more naked than any beast of the field. And that actually makes sense. A serpent and his skin is so barren. He has no fur, he has no covering. And what's very special about this account is that the entire account of Genesis 3 is really an allegory about nakedness versus clothing, about good versus evil, about ignorance versus wisdom. And we see at the very end of this account, after Eve's partaken of the fruit, it's lauded as a triumph when God clothes Adam and Eve and he acknowledges that they have gained wisdom. So clothing is associated with wisdom. It is also associated with triumph and with victory. If you think of kings and queens during their coronation ceremonies, they are clothed with so many different layers that symbolize different things of their power and their endowment and their glory. And so what happens from the beginning to the end of this account is we see Adam and Eve begin naked. The serpent also begins naked. This denotes something of their ignorance, as well as something about their spiritual blindness. There was something that they were lacking. And yet we see that because Eve was the turning point and she decided to partake of the fruit and gave to her husband also, by the end of this account, we see that the serpent is still naked. He is still spiritually deficient. He is still lacking something. And yet, from verses 20 to 22, God bestows an endowment upon Eve. She receives a new name. She and Adam are both clothed with coats of skins that must have been taken from the sacrifice of some animal at this time. And that should draw to our minds the atonement of Jesus Christ. And the word for atonement itself is kippur, which means to cover. So the clothing of Adam and Eve denotes the power of Christ with them. 
this elevation in spiritual status as well as in wisdom. Verse 22 says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. So the Lord acknowledges full well that Adam and Eve have graduated to a higher state of being and they have gained wisdom. And he clothes them as a sign that partaking was the righteous thing to do. In contrast, however, we see that the serpent remains yet naked. And so this is really interesting too when we think about the temple experience. It's so laughable that the serpent or the devil himself always tries to present himself especially in the context of clothing, sacred clothing, as having some kind of authority that he does not possess. He has zero authority and he isn't clothed. And so any clothing he may profess to have is really a metaphor for the power he claims to possess. So this entire account is a really beautiful allegory about how a serpent, the most naked beast of all of the animals that have ever been created of God, remains naked and remains completely delusional about how much influence he actually has in the plan of salvation, while Adam and Eve, the children of God, receive clothing and an endowment of wisdom and power. So Jessica talks about the serpent as the devil, which of course is obviously the narratives that we get in all of our texts. One connection with the serpent that really resonates with me is the idea or the mythologies that we have of the serpent being related to the goddess. One of the places that if you want to read more about this, Sumunk Kid, she writes a lot about this in her book, The Dance of the Dissident Daughter. And she's less of a scholarly writer and writes more particularly about her own experiences and discoveries within the journey of her own journey with divine feminine awakening. But that book, I feel like, does a really good job at describing the divine feminine awakening experience, while also including a lot of the history that she discovers in studying some ancient theologies. Anyway, so she talks about how the goddess was portrayed as a serpent um, or accompanied by a serpent in ancient times, and that the serpent was a symbol of female wisdom and power and regeneration and sent a central symbol of sacred feminine energy. And I love the way that she talks about this um, narrative because she kind of metaphorically also implies that when enmity is placed between the serpent and Eve, she derives, is this enmity placed between woman and their divine feminine nature? And is this something that we are come to journey on in our mortal life to rediscover that divine feminine nature and rejoin with that serpent, rejoin with the serpent and the divine feminine within ourselves? And I love that narrative. But the idea of the serpent being connected with ancient goddesses, one of the examples that we have is with the goddess Wajet in Egypt, and she is the partner to Ra. Ra is the father god, and the cobra, she is the, symbolized by the cobra, and she is the complement to Ra, the feminine equivalent of Ra. 
and she is both fierce and fiery and nurturing. And if we look at the hats that the pharaohs in ancient Egypt wore, they often wore the serpent on their head, symbolizing her power. Um, Her name also preceded the pharaoh's title, and this was a display of their connection with her and of her partnership in helping them rule and reign with her power. But what I think is really interesting is the way that this parallels with how we see Asherah as well and how we see wisdom in ancient Canaanite culture and also wisdom in the way that we see her paired with King Solomon is that she is viewed in the same way as Wajette is viewed as this companion to the kings, the one who bestows her power upon them so that they can rule, so that they can reign her worth and value that is more precious than rubies, right? So there are a lot of connections between this cobra goddess, Wajet, and Asherah, or wisdom. One other interesting connection, if you remember when Jessica talked about the Baal cycle, in Lynn Picknett's book, When God Had a Wife, she talks about Asherah, and one of the things that Asherah was known for was this trait of conniving, persuading, or beguiling. And the scripture, when we hear about the serpent beguiling Eve draws to my mind again this way that Asherah is portrayed as kind of this beguiling goddess who is able to persuade the father god with her cunningness to grant her children more power right to give Baal more power build him a mansion in in heaven in Lynn Picknett's book she says Quote, El himself was always regarded as the supreme source of wisdom, but as we know, Asherah was known for a particular type. Asherah was manipulative, certainly, but arguably in a good way. Her skill at persuasion was considered a form of wisdom. So when I read this account, in all of these details that I have explained, I like to see the mother as the serpent this choice that Eve made to make her wise, this serpent that was anciently known as the goddess and these ties that we see to ancient goddesses and to Asherah as well, in my mind, denotes the goddess. I was just going to add that that's so amazing because Atirat, Asherah, Atirat, another name for her was Kudshu. She was synonymous with Kudshu in the text from Rashamra. And Kuchu in iconography is consistently depicted either holding two snakes in both hands as her arms are stretched up like the branches of a tree or sometimes she's depicted holding a bouquet of flowers in one hand and a serpent in the other and perhaps this is you know just Jessica's brain jumping a little bit too quickly. And I don't mean to insert parallelomania onto this piece of iconography, but you can Google it and look this up to anybody listening. When I see Kudshu standing like a tree holding flowers in one hand and a serpent in the other, it really brings to my mind this connection to the tree of knowledge and the difference between good flowers and evil, the serpent. And even when she's holding the two serpents in either hand, I still think there's that connection possibly to be made when we think about the story of Moses and the fiery serpents versus 
the healing serpents on the pole of brass. And the difference is the intention and the source and the authority, right? The, the serpent as the mother God would have been this positive agent for wisdom and for knowledge. And the serpent as the devil would have been this negative agent who was manipulative and was mimicking the image of God and the authority of the real God or goddess in that moment. So listening to you, Natalie, this is so beautiful to consider. And the way that I love to look at anything that I ever think about when it comes to the scriptures is like, I just have like this great big table in front of me and it's a Thanksgiving feast. And we've got two different turkeys, but they're amazing in their own right. And I feel like everything is welcome. And the way that you talk about this, I feel like even though I'm someone who has traditionally viewed the serpent as the devil, I embrace this and I really welcome this as food for thought because this is so beautiful to think about. There are these ancient and historical proven connections to a goddess. And I also think that it's it's just at large a greater connection to that metaphor of Moses and us learning to differentiate between negative serpents and positive serpents, right? Yeah, and I love how both of you emphasize that this comes down to motivation. It comes down to intent. And I like to consider that if we see the serpent as Lucifer, one of the reasons that he chose the serpent was to try and imitate a divine figure that was known in other mythologies and cultures. And we do see so many connections between a goddess and a serpent, like Natalie was talking about Wajet and Kadeshet in Egypt as well, who is sometimes thought to be the same as Kudshu. Um, you know, both of these seen holding the snakes. Astarte as well is depicted with arms outstretched holding these two snakes. There's even a thought that Tiamat, where she is depicted as a sea, sometimes is also depicted as a, a sea dragon or a serpent. And there's some relation between Marduk slaying Tiamat and slaying the serpent and how that can be potentially seen in this story of conquering the serpent in the Garden of Eden. There's a lot of different mythologies that can kind of be woven here, and it's difficult to know exactly what was intended, but I think it's good to put this in some of that context. There's another story that gives us a little bit more context, and that's the story of Gilgamesh. In one story of Gilgamesh and the Hulupu tree, which is dated to around 2000 BCE, it begins with the goddess Inanna. She plants a tree in a sacred garden and she tends it and she intends to use the wood from that tree for a throne and a bed, a marriage bed. And then a bird makes a nest for it and Lilith makes her home in it and a serpent moves in on the roots and Inanna asks her brother, the sun god, to help her remove them and he doesn't respond. So instead Gilgamesh comes to her aid and he kills the snake and Lilith and the bird flee. And so in return, Inanna rewards him. And there's a lot of different ways to, to pull these connections. One of them that we've talked about, or at least hinted to now, is the connection between wisdom and the tree of knowledge. And Carol Myers, in her book Discovering Eve, pointed this out, and she said that many scholars now recognize the background of wisdom in the Eden tale in terms of both its literary form and its existential concerns. She is arguing that this belongs in the wisdom literature. 
as kind of a, a form of a parable or a wisdom tale. And more significantly, though, she states the prominent role of the female rather than the male in the wisdom aspects of the Eden tale is a little noticed feature of the narrative. It is the woman, not the man, who perceives the desirability of procuring wisdom. The woman, again, not the man, is the articulate member of the first pair who engages in dialogue even before the benefits of the wisdom tree have been procured. This association between the female and the qualities of wisdom may have a mythic background with the features of a Semitic wisdom goddess underlying the intellectual prominence of the woman of Eden. And in some interpretations, it's interesting that the reason the serpent speaks to the woman is because he perceives that she's capable of more intellectual reasoning. <laughs> and so there's something really interesting to piece out from that. Um, what you just read brings to mind my mind this scripture that's in um, one of our apocryphal texts. It's in Ben Sirach 25. And the scene before this particular scripture it's talk, it starts talking about the rivers that we find flowing from the Garden of, of Eden. And so in my mind, I'm already drawn to the Garden of Eden as the, these rivers are mentioned. And then in the scripture, 25 verse 28, it says, The first man did not know wisdom fully. And I just love that. I'm sure this is not what it's trying to convey, but when I read that, in conjunction with you said with what you said, Alin, right? We have this scene of being set up in the Garden of Eden, and then this line that top mentions that the first man, being Adam, did not know wisdom fully, but Eve, our mother, did. And when she came to know wisdom and decided to partake, to me that speaks of her coming to know the mother and understanding her divine nature that she could fulfill to become like the mother as well and therefore partaking the fruit. One way of looking at this that has been suggested by Merlin Stone is that perhaps the original story may have represented Eve as a priestess of the mother god, and that only with later editors it was changed to instead be a condemnation of the cult of the goddess, kind of like Margaret Barker suggests the Deuteronomist reforms, which are thought to have re-edited some of the Bible to explicitly condemn Asherah worship. And that view is interesting because then we would have the Yahwist making the woman explicitly the villain, where perhaps maybe she wasn't originally in the interpretation, and turning it, like Anne Gardner argues, into a polemic against goddess worship. And that's an interesting view. Whether or not it's accurate, it's fascinating to consider there are deep historical trends showing up in this. Well, but also look at the way that this story is weaponized against women even today. Throughout the history of the world, this story has been used. Our origin story, which is supposed to like really denote how powerful, how wise, how wonderful women innately are, if this really is our origin story, like it, it's just so discouraging and clear to see how it's been used as a weapon against women to subjugate them, to push them down, to assert dominion over them as though the woman did something wrong. So it would not be surprising at all if this was also being weaponized against goddess worship. So there's a lot to this and we're barely touching some of these ideas, 
One good resource that I really enjoyed reading is a book called Goddess in the Grass. It's by Linda Fubister. And she goes through a lot of these different connections between serpent symbolism and different goddesses and how those are connected. There's a lot of commentary relating the serpent of Moses to the savior, to Yahweh. And I think there's a lot of really interesting things to see there as well. Some people have even suggested that perhaps the serpent was meant to represent some kind of Christ in the tree. And again, I would say that maybe that would be Lucifer trying to imitate Christ. So there's a lot to think about in this, but let's switch gears for a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about some of the symbolism of the actual fruit and what it might have meant that she partook of the fruit. Natalie, you've done some great research on this potentially being a fig and what that might entail. Yeah. So the fig, one of the reasons that people like to talk about the possibility of Eve partaking of a fig is because that is one of the only trees that is named in the account specifically is a fig tree. And so we know that fig trees were present. And so some derive from that, that what Eve partook of was a fig. And one of the paintings that I have that is titled The Gift of Our Mothers is of Eve partaking of the fruit and she's holding a fig. And I chose to have Eve partaking of a fig because of its connection to life and its connection to wisdom. Mindy Brown, to bring up Mindy again, but she talks about how Eve is often portrayed as partaking of an apple and that one of the reasons she's portrayed as partaking of an apple is because the Latin word for apple is the same word that's used for evil. And so this is another way that we get this story of Eve partaking of evil and being manipulated, right? And beguiled. And I love that the fig does the opposite of that. It represents abundance and life. And it also, throughout the scriptures, represents prosperity and righteousness and godly presence and guidance. But one thing that it can also represent if we follow the idea of Margaret Barker being that wisdom was the mother goddess and that when the goddess was being worshipped, there were fig trees present conveying righteousness and conveying abundance and life. Um, when we see that Israel begins to throw out wisdom, then we see in Joel 1-7 it says, that he hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. The vine is dried up and the fig tree languisheth. So we see that the trees begin to die and that the fig disappears. So if we follow Margaret Barker's logic, then we can see that the fig tree in and of itself is tied to wisdom, tied to Asherah, and that when she is there in Israelite worship, the fig is present, the fig and the vine are both thriving, and when she is cast out, then they begin to die along with wisdom. So one of the ideas that I wanted to convey when in this painting when choosing the fig is conveying that Eve, when partaking, was partaking of wisdom and was partaking of righteousness and was choosing God's path, that she was coming to know her mother, that she was following the guidance and the example that her mother had set before her, 
and in so choosing to partake of the fig was choosing to journey on a path that would further allow her to become like Heavenly Mother. Isn't that just like a total 180 to how we normally view this? I love that. That's so powerful. So let's talk a little bit about, well, Jessica, let me, what do you think about this? So I've, I've heard this quote that beguiling denotes an intense multi-level experience evoking emotional, psychological, and or spiritual trauma. However, I have not been able to find any corroborating <laughs> definitions of this word in anything that I've looked like. Everything here, it seems like a very straightforward beguile, deceive. Yeah, okay. So I can distinctly remember, like, this word has always been really important to me to be like, man, like, what does this mean? Is there some other, like, connotation to it? Like, what's going on here? And in my Hebrew classes, I distinctly remember us sitting down, translating this chapter and being like, nope, beguile means exactly what you think it means. It means to deceive. And I had heard that too before, that it implies this like great psychological distress. And I don't know about that, but have you ever been deceived before? Like seriously, have you ever had somebody twist the truth to you and your life was at stake or a major decision was at stake? Have you ever been manipulated or coerced into something that maybe was a good thing, but it was not the right situation or it wasn't coming from the right person to do it? It feels awful. It's traumatizing and it breaks your soul. So, you know, I, I have often like, you know, just kind of kind of wondered, especially lately, actually, just just kind of like within this year, I've thought, you know what, maybe Eve wasn't like sheepishly saying, oh, well, it was the serpent's fault. So that's why I partook of the tree. Like I still believe that was her own independent, deliberate and empowering decision to make. Although definitely she could have been scared or regretted it afterwards. Like maybe she was afraid, but I, I don't think she was blaming the serpent in that moment as much as telling God what he did to her. If the serpent was a negative agent, if the serpent really did deceive her and try to manipulate her, that's abuse. That's trauma. And we see God deal very justly with this piece of trash, like abuser, and really put him in his place and punish him for trying to probably lead Eve to do something far worse after she had partaken of the fruit, right? Yeah. And that's kind of where I've come down on this, right? So I think there it, it rings true, this idea of this intense emotional experience. And I can definitely imagine that Eve in the garden, running through all these different scenarios, praying, seeking revelation about it, being conflicted between what the serpent is presenting her and this commandment, all these things. I mean, that, that does ring true. However, it seems like this word really does mean deceived or beguiled. So I'm not entirely confident about this aspect of the word beguile. This is more a question that I'm posing, and I'm happy to stand corrected if anything that I'm sharing is not accurate. Um, like I said in my Hebrew classes, when we talked about this word, we talked about how it's, it's straightforward in its meaning. However, its poetic function, I think, has perhaps a little bit more nuance to it. So I, I wanted to talk about that. The root for the word beguile is nasha. And that is really interesting to note in contrast to the root 
of serpent, which is Nahash. So if you listen to those two words side by side with each other, Nahash, the serpent, Nasha, beguile. I think that it's possible that there's a wordplay going on here and that perhaps the reason why this word in particular was chosen wasn't necessarily because of a, a literal a perfect translation that it represented to the story of the text, but it's possible that it served a poetic function in the way that it parallels and plays off of this word for serpent. When we actually read the text, it doesn't appear as nasha, right? Because that's, that's the root of the word. It appears in a construct. So what we actually read when we're looking at Genesis 3 is ha-nahash hishiani. Hishiani is the construct of nasha. And this is really interesting, and I totally could be completely off base here, but this is another reason why I think it's possible this word choice served more of a poetic function than necessarily giving us the word-for-word factual recitation of what was actually said between Eve and the Lord. When you imagine a storyteller reciting this story for years and years with oral tradition and reciting it in a way that is memorable, you know, the way that we tell fairy tales and folklore to each other ourselves around our campfires, the stories that we pass down, there's a way that we tell stories. There's a way that we emphasize our words. There is a way that we deliver the story. And so this construct of nasha, hishiani, it sounds very much to me like the hiss of a snake. And I, I don't know if there's any Hebrew example of an association with the actual hiss, like that specific sound, hiss of a snake. But I do know that in the Book of Mormon, it does say near the end, there's a scripture I think in Moroni that talks about how uh, the gospel, I believe, will hiss onto the nations of the earth or something like that. And so if there is any connection, they actually made this sound thousands of years ago. It's possible that they chose this word in particular because what it would read as is Nahash Hishiani. And I can imagine a storyteller really emphasizing that hiss, that hish of a snake in that moment. And it, it makes a lot of sense if we are depicting the devil or whoever as a serpent in this story. So I think it, it may have had more of a poetic function rather than the serpent literally beguiled her and she was blaming the serpent for doing that. Okay, that's so interesting, Jessica. I'm so glad that you brought that up. And I think that just emphasizes once again how many of these literary devices we see showing up in the Hebrew text. That's one thing that we know about the Hebrew authors is they were so poetic. It's important not just to be able to look at the literal meanings of these words, but to get a sense of the poetry, the rhythm, sometimes even the onomatopoeia that we have showing up in the Hebrew text. I think we miss so much of that if we just look at a translation. So that's really powerful. I'm so glad you brought that up. So there's a lot of different ideas here, but Again, I think it really comes down to motivation. To whatever extent Eve was actually deceived by the serpent, or whether the serpent was just functioning as the necessary catalyst for her to ponder and to seek revelation, and to whatever extent she knew or didn't know exactly what she was doing when she partook 
And personally, I think she really knew a lot more than we give her credit for. We know that Adam and Eve were taught the gospel while in the garden. So it makes sense to me. I don't think our our heavenly parents would allow them to make such a choice blindly. But aside from all of that, what's really important in my mind is the motivation. And that's something that I feel like we really need to emphasize here. It always comes down to intentions when it says that the serpent knew not the mind of God. And so he sought to ruin the plan, to destroy the plan. It was suggested by Vivian McConkie that Satan's plan was not just to get them to partake of the fruit, but to get them to partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, to make them mortal, and then to get them to partake of the fruit of the tree of life and trap them in their sins. And so it's interesting if you look at it that way that Satan's plan was foiled. His plan to trap them in damned mortality was foiled. And when we see God protecting the tree of life later, which we'll talk about a lot more in the next episode, it's this great act of mercy. That is the Lord foiling Satan's plan and extending Adam and Eve's time here. And so I like to look at it that way as well, because then we see Satan trying to disrupt God's plan, and yet he still does not. He can't. You know, something else that's really interesting about this little glimpse that we get into Satan's intention when it says that he knew not the mind of God, a lot of times we'll look at it and think, oh, so stupid. <laughs> he just, he didn't know that it was God's plan for Adam and Eve to partake of the fruit. Well, that just doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> Maybe it does to some people, but he was in the council. He would have known that was the plan. I think he knew that. He knew the plan, but he didn't believe it would work. He didn't have faith in us that we would really be able to choose the Savior and choose to return to live with our parents. And ultimately what it comes down to is he didn't have faith in the Savior. The only way in my mind that Satan could have thought that he really had a chance at disrupting this plan would be if he did not have faith in the Savior. Because if the Savior didn't follow through, and didn't offer that sacrifice, Lucifer would be right. Partaking of the fruit would be a foiling of eternal bliss. It would be eternal separation from God. When I read that he knew not the mind of God, what I think that means is that he didn't know the Savior personally. He didn't trust him. He didn't have faith in him. And he didn't know with every fiber of his being the love of God. Eve's motivation was different. Nehama Ashkenazi, I love the way that she described Eve's motivation for partaking of the fruit when she said, The biblical Eve may be seen as epitomizing the human predicament in her wish to transcend her limitations and expand her horizons. And I love that. And then we, you know, we see this as well. We have this description of her seeing the fruit as good for food to make one wise. First of all, it's really interesting to note that the style of writing the scriptures often does not give a lot of detail. And so the fact that we even have this phrase, 
that Eve saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desired to make one wise. That's significant because, like I said, very rarely do we have a look into somebody's inner thoughts, their deliberations, and their motivations. I find it extremely significant that we have that here because it says to me that Eve's intentions were good. Satan knew enough about human nature to know that Eve's desires were not for jewelry or riches or anything that involved a worldly pleasure. It was knowledge and the wisdom of God. There's a pseudepigraphical text called The Combat of Adam and Eve Against Satan, and it's thought to be a collection of early writings that were later gathered in Ethiopian and Arabic manuscripts. And in this, God says to Adam and Eve, of your own free will, you have transgressed through your desire for divinity, greatness, and an exalted state such as I have. I think we see in Eve's choice to partake a desire to progress. To quote Nehama Ashkenazi again, she said, in one brief second, Eve has a vision of the total range of the human experience, and by eating from the tree, she expresses a lust for life in all its manifestations. The act of violating God's order is not described by the biblical author as the surrender to temptation of a silly, empty-headed person, but as the daring attempt of a curious person with an appetite for life to encompass the whole spectrum of life's possibilities. And this is consistent with the way that modern leaders talk about Eve. Eve sought to progress, to become like her heavenly parents, and then she brought her family with her when she turned around and offered the fruit to Adam. Henry B. Eyring said, Why does a daughter of God in a united and equal relationship receive the primary responsibility to nourish with the most important nutrient all must receive, a knowledge of truth coming from heaven? As nearly as I can see, that has been the Lord's way since families were created in the world. It was Eve who received the knowledge that Adam needed to partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge for them to keep all of God's commandments and to form a family. I do not know why it came to Eve first, but Adam and Eve were perfectly united when the knowledge poured out on Adam. I love the way that Henry B. Eyring talked about their perfect unity and their equal relationship, and yet Eve received this, the knowledge, the revelation that she needed to partake and that Adam needed to partake. And there's two things that I really like about this. In chapter 3, verse 6, we see that Eve partakes of the fruit, and it says she did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her. And Dan McClellan was the one also that pointed out that this phrase, with her, it really implies that Adam was there beside her. And I love that because it it reminds me of their unity. And it also ties back to a commandment that we read in the book of Moses, but that doesn't show up in our Genesis text. In Moses 4, verse 18, after 
they partake when God asks Adam, did you eat of the fruit? And Adam says, the woman thou gavest me and commandest that she should remain with me. She gave me of the fruit of the tree and I did eat. And so I see that some people point to this and and see Adam passing the blame off to Eve. I don't see that. I see in this statement, Adam saying, I hearkened to her. I listened to her. You told me to stay with her and I did. And it's this really beautiful moment of love, of romance, of him recognizing her personal revelation, of him recognizing his desire to stay with her. In so many ways, we see Adam would literally rather die than live without Eve. And so when he partakes hearkening to his wife, we see a balance, a unity, in my mind, a beautiful marriage relationship. What we see in the Hebrew text when it states in Genesis 3.19, Adam hearkened to his wife, that Hebrew word is Shema or Shema. He hearkened to her the way that one hearkens to God. That word is always used in the Hebrew Bible to express the way that God says, hey, listen up and obey my commandments, listen to my voice. Whenever the Lord is speaking to his people, he says, hearken unto me, and it is to rivet their attention. And so the same esteem that we give to God when we hearken to him, when we listen to him and we obey him, this is what is implied in the text Adam did for his wife before there is ever any mention that she did the same for him. And I think that that's important to emphasize, not because I'm suggesting there was an inequality, but rather that contrary to the narrative that Eve was always destined to be submissive to her husband, that is not, that's not what's presented in the text at all. And what we see is a beautiful and equal partnership. He first hearkened to her, and so, any implication afterwards, and, and we even see this in traditional marriage ceremonies where throughout all of history, brides have been asked in this moment of marriage, and I, I hate that they are asked this, it's, it's gross, because both should be asked this, but when a bride is asked, like, will you, do you vow to obey or hearken to your husband? In my opinion, the purest root of that tradition is Genesis 3.19, Adam hearkened to Eve. And what is supposed to be implicit um, in that vow that Eve or that a bride is making to her husband when she's getting married, it's supposed to be implicit there that Adam or the groom, you know, has already and must do that as well for his wife. But I think that we need to be louder and more explicit about that because it's there and this is what the text says. The thing about Genesis 3 that is so important to me to take note of anytime that I talk about it is that Adam's eyes were closed during the creation of Eve. And this is something that even in our ritual ceremonies has significance and a purpose. 
And I think that it's beautiful and symbolic and it points to Eve's role as a messianic character in this narrative that she looked at the tree. That verse six actively describes her using her eyes. And this is before she even partook of the fruit, before her eyes were spiritually opened by partaking of the fruit, there was something about Eve that her eyes already could see that the fruit was good. And she says that she looked, she saw, and she desired. And I, I just think that that's so important to note here that she had righteous desires and she also had a gift for whatever you want to call it. If you want to call it intuition, prophecy, foresight she really was acting as a high priestess and a proxy for all of us and making this very selfless sacrifice to leave the comfort the safety and security of the garden to give us all a chance and a choice in this life i love that she had to deliberately use her agency in this moment to let all of us be able to use ours that's that's what's so beautiful about Eve, you know, quote, breaking the commandment. That's what it was. Eve's choice in this case to partake of mortality and then to invite Adam along with her is a very Christ-like role. And we see that in all these elements of the narrative. When we see in our temple narrative that Eve turns to Elohim and begs, is there no other way? I see the direct parallels to the Savior turning to his parents in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and crying out, if there be any other way, let this cup pass. I imagine that Eve faced some of that same worry, knowing the difficulty, the pain the trials that would come into mortality, but also knowing that it was the only way. It's interesting to consider in the pre-mortal existence, the two plans that were presented by Lucifer and by Christ. Lucifer's emphasized that all could be saved without agency and without risk. The Savior's plan depends on agency and depends on faith. And so by Eve making that decision to step out of the garden, it was, in my mind, the biggest testimony, the biggest sign of her testimony and her pure faith in the Savior. The only way that she could step out and believe that it would not be damnation that it would not subject her to eternal separation from God was by having this pure faith in the Savior, believing and trusting and hoping that he would come, that he would, through his atonement, enable her to return and Adam with her. And so in so many ways, Eve's story points me to the Savior. She opened the gates of mortality the same way that the Savior opened the gates to eternal life. I find it interesting that the word for fall and sin do not appear in the Hebrew text of this story. And the way that we talk about it in the Pearl of Great Price, 
the way that Eve describes it is not through the fall, but through transgression. To transgress the bounds, to move beyond her limitations, to step into the next part of the plan of salvation. Eve deserves all of our praise and gratitude for that brave choice. Join us next time to talk through what we sometimes call the curses of Adam and Eve's decision. If you're enjoying this podcast, leave us a review wherever you're listening. You can also follow us on Instagram at Behold Thy Mother with dots between the words.